The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that. When we were in Oshkosh, um, I met, I think you guys met him too, but I met one of our listeners who is an engineer for these, uh, how do you say it, Terrafugia? Yeah. Terrafuega. Terrafuega, Terrafugia, however you say it. Um, so so I, I need to be diplomatic on my thoughts here. All right. Well, so, you know... So this is, so this is story we're looking at this story from uh, popularscience.com yet another one of our favorite aviation publications <laughs> Well that's before we go much further afield here that's the reason I brought this one um, to y'all's attention was because it was in, in popular science yeah. it's it's a fairly interesting article about the project um I reserve judgment on the project and I'm sure our our, our listener who is involved with the project and and others um, involved with the project. I'm sure they're kind of sort of familiar with some of the, the skepticism um, that the, the community, the aviation community, has is, is, is brought to this project. More power to them. Well, yeah, yeah true. From, from an engineer, from strictly sort of a, an academic engineering standpoint, it's an impressive piece of work if they can pull it off, all right? But it's like, you know, it's, it's neither nor. It's like, uh, you know, what's the old saying about you know, teaching a pig to dance, you know, it's like, you know, it never really learns how to dance and you just annoy the pig or something like that. Wrestling with a pig. Something like that. All right. And uh, it's going to be neither a very good car nor a very good airplane, I would imagine. I don't know. It's just. Well, you know, but but it's going to fulfill certain people's uh-huh. dreams. Yeah. And I got to tell you, I've been I've been researching a story about a guy who in the uh between 1919, 1918, and 1923, commuted to work from his house in Garden City, Long Island, to his factory in Farmingdale with his airplane. Okay. Okay? But, he but, took a ticket every day landing on the road outside the factory. <laughs> okay. okay. All right. Yeah. Are you with me here? He kept his airplane in his garage. Talk about user fees, huh? Wow. Okay. Talk about your user fees. And he was good humored about it, as were the local gendarmes, I must say. Yeah. Um, but the, the point of the matter is this is every person's fantasy for a long, long time. That's nearly 100 years ago, guys. Huh? A flying oh, car. Well, it's definitely a long-running fantasy, yeah. uh, a, a, along with a number of other things about aviation, uh, hover, <laughs> hovercraft. Uh, and I look at this one as, oh man, this is where the FAA and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration are going to have to form an action committee just to figure out how to to make it. it you know, fit highway standards and A standards, and I can't wait to see what it costs after it's gone through that paper mill. Yeah. Well, I got to tell you, though, that these, these kids actually have one up on that because they understand that both of those, everybody's under DOT. And as long as they meet all the standards for one and the other, it's really hard 
for anybody to get in their way. Uh, you know, uh, and I don't disagree with that. I mean, as long as they can meet the standards for both, then the only thing that's going to get in the way is the price of the meeting the standards of both. Right. Uh, and then, and then we get to this issue that came up when Chilt Rotor was going through another one of its periodic, and there have been a number over the last forty years, periodic waves of adoration and adulation. We're going to have city center to city center hover ports where tilt rotors will be able to drop into residential neighborhoods and people will be able to walk from the hover port to their house. And, you know, before the aircraft even flies, the NIMBYs will where? On my cul-de-sac? I don't think so. Not in my backyard, <laughs> not in my front yard, not in my side yard. Which brings me down to this whole idea of, uh, okay, yieldable air- aircraft, uh, and there are definitely roads leading to the airport. So we're good there on both sides. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, isn't it going to be cheaper just to keep an old beater at the airport? Well, it, it just may be. Um, I think one of the things driving this design um, is um, real estate. And the price of real estate in, in congested areas, and and how it's obviously, you know, cheaper to have um, a a garageable airplane as opposed to a um, or or a flyable car as opposed to a hangar and a house and, and all of this. The thing that that strikes me about this, though, and and I will give. The, the the engineers here some credit they they've approached this as the con- from the concept of a rotable airplane versus a flyable car if that oh, yeah. makes yeah. In, in any sense but that's just, is that really any, anything go ahead david well, you, you uh, don't even want, want, no, 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 what i was going to get get at though is, is is um um the roadworthiness of this vehicle uh, is not so much um whether it'll handle on the road and, and drive and, and be safe and have lighting and all that kind of crap. But the first time someone runs into it, yeah, you've, you've just totally hosed your airplane. And you can't take this to a body shop. Mm-hmm. It's going to have to go to an A&P. It's going to have to go to a repair station or something like that because this is all carbon fiber. And it's going to have to be repaired in a certain fashion, not... Uh, um, like you can get done at at uh, at, at Bobby Bill's uh, body shop or something. Well, isn't it going to have to be repaired to FAA standards? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Oh, it's got so to meet all the standards, frankly. Yeah, but but the car but cars don't have any standard. You know, you look at you know, I mean, well, the average cars. No, no, no. Yeah, they, they do. <laughs> no, no, no. But they're much, much lower. The insurance company they get around them by using substandard parts. But the thought for you. Yeah. Now, yeah, but the actual, I, but, but I got to tell you that the DOT standards for cars is tougher to meet for these particular people. And I, I spoke with them at Oshkosh. They told me the DOT standards are tougher to meet than the, than the FAA standards. Yeah. Really? I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt that. Yeah. But how about we make this standard vehicle for the Red Bull race and incorporate <laughs> a little bit? One track in the middle of a Red Bull race. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Fun. 
All right. Well, on that note, let me say welcome, folks, to episode number 105 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the general aviation podcast. We are recording this episode on uh, Friday evening, October 24th, 2008. And uh, let me say hi to my friends here in the virtual hangar. One of those voices out there is Jeb Burnside. He's talking to us from Sarasota, Florida. Hi, Jeb. How you doing? I'm fine, Jack. Hope uh, everybody else is. Um, kind of a rainy, overcast day down here. It's really kind of yucky. Ooh. But, uh, you know, stuff happens. I, at least, uh, you know, I'm not, you know, rooting for the Sox. Oh, okay. We'll come, well, maybe we won't come back to that. <laughs> uh, also with us in the virtual hangar is David Higdon. Hey, and Dave is, all, is joining us from Wichita, Kansas. Now, uh, how are you doing, David? Oh, finer than frog hair. Yeah. And scotch. Watching the sky clear back up, uh, waiting for our first hard freeze of the yeah. of the year. Uh, well, of the coming winter. That's right. Now I have to say that David is bearing up like a hero here. He's been been having a lot of troubles with his internet service provider over the last few weeks, and and some listeners may have noticed that the quality of his connection has been getting worse and worse. And he's been trying all the different ways he can think of to solve this problem, but it seems to be just getting worse and worse. Um, you you probably heard a lot of problems with his connection um, during the beginning portion of this episode, um, but uh, in, in the last couple of minutes, we sort of invisible to the audience changed him over so that uh, you're either hearing him now on a regular telephone connection, or if we've managed to get the technology right, um, you're hearing a nice, clean, crisp connection of him. I'm not sure which. Uh, or, or not at all. There's a third option. No, no, yeah, you'll hear him one way or the other. <laughs> so David's out there, too. And also with us today, uh, tonight in the virtual hangar is Amy Laboda from Fort Myers, Florida. Hi, Amy. How are you doing? I'm fine. You know, the rain has just stopped down here, and I did manage to get the dog walked, so all is okay. Now, when it rains down there this time of year, is it still thunderstorms, or is it... uh, It can be thunderstorms, but it's mostly showery, more uh, stratus-type precipitation. Uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah. And I am Jack Hodgson, and I'm talking to you from UCAP World Headquarters in Dover, New Hampshire. Uh, where uh, where where fall is definitely past peak up here. The last two or three weekends have been really the great bright colors, and uh, we actually had our first frost here uh, in the last couple in the last week or so. And uh, the frost really kills the brightness of the colors. And uh, what is that? Uh, yeah, okay. You get we're frost. Di- we're dying for a fifty-eight degree morning. Okay. Yeah, we are. We, uh, we'll probably, we might get one next week. You guys are just a bunch of big whips, wimps down there. If you get frost down there, it's like big news. It's like, you know. It kills the vegetable crop. It, it, that's right. It's that's just like a disaster. That's right. That's right. So, so you know, for us, it's just kind of a part of the life. It's part of the world. It's no big deal. So, uh, anyways, uh, let's see now. In the process of work, dealing with David's problem, I lost my place here. What's next? Oh, so I did want to mention to uh, to listeners that uh, just one little administrative thing, and that is that those of you who listen to this episode quickly uh, will probably not have heard episode number 104 yet because uh, we had major problems getting the things worked out uh, last week with the uh, episode, and uh, we were trying a new method that didn't quite work out the way I thought it was going to, so it took us longer to get it together. But uh, soon after this one goes online, uh, 104 will probably be finished, and uh, when you got time to stare, spare, try it on air. That's right. Yeah. So, uh, so we, for that one, we, we sort of have a missing episode. We did this once before, where we had an episode that came out out of order, and uh, the world didn't end. So that's what we're gonna. Ha- that's what's going to happen this time. But uh, uncontrolled airspace, the lost episode. That's right. That's right. Uncontrolled airspace, the lost minds. Mm-hmm. Jack. Yeah. Avoiding my question. What was your question? Who buys the round for oh. that one? 
Oh, nobody buys the re- I was avoiding your question. Uh, <laughs> so, Amy, I don't know if you've been paying attention here, but the deal, the new deal is that if I can't manage to get these episodes up on the net in a timely fashion, then I have to buy these guys uh, uh, a round of beers. And I and, did actually see that email. And uh, so, um, and and. And I don't think last week's counts because it was just way out of outside of my control. No, no, last week's shouldn't count because, uh, well, unless I can get uh, Charlie Oscar X-Ray ISP service to pay for the beers. Yeah, there you go. But they're yeah. going to wind up paying for the beers anyway because I, I am actively researching yeah. finding a replacement for Charlie Oscar X-Ray okay. because I've had it. All right. There you yeah. go. Just, right. just done. You know, and and I'm thinking really, really hard about carrier pigeons with tin cans and string to replace these suckers. So, (laughs) I like I said on the on the forum posting, we were talking about this a little bit, and uh, if I had your kind of internet problems, I would go insane. I could not live my life. Well, I I would, yeah. I mean, we wouldn't be having this conversation because I would already be incarcerated. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I'd, you you you've heard me over the last few weeks, and you say you'd be insane. Pay attention. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you don't. You're, you're you're handling it well. You're handling it well. Anyways, enough of that. Um, we are trying to work this out. Uh, as I've said on the forums, and I'll say to this bigger audience, if there's anybody out there in our listening audience who knows of a Skype capable internet connectivity solution for the Wichita area, we would love to hear it, because uh, we're kind of stumped at this stage of the game, and uh, it's kind of, we're reduced to raging against the wind, but uh, enough of that, let's talk about airplanes here a little bit. Um, we uh, this, this is almost certainly going to be the last episode that people hear before the presidential election in, uh, currently it's about a week and a half from, a little, little less than a week and a half from now. And uh, we haven't talked very much about the presidential election because we don't talk about those kinds of things. But I did want to kind of bring to the to the table the fact that uh, AOPA uh, sat down, didn't sit down, but they through channels, I would imagine, um, asked the candidates uh, t- each 10 questions about aviation, and they have published their answers uh, on their website. And uh, I wanted to find out what you guys think of this. Um, I looked them over, and I have an opinion, but but what do you guys think? Have you had a chance to look at the uh, the answers to 10 questions? I've looked at them while we've been uh, doing our intros and stuff this evening. Mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I think it's almost a waste of HTML pages in a lot of ways. Yeah, it really, there was nothing of any big surprise there. It was yeah, just... There, there uh, weren't any surprises, and, um, you know, in the scheme of things... Uh, as much as we might want to think otherwise, general aviation is is a pimple on the butt of of uh, the uh, uh, the body politic. Um, it's very it, it's a very insignificant aspect of the overall economy, the overall uh, political animal that that Washington has to deal with, especially. Um, now and in the foreseeable future. Well, you know, I, you know, you you wouldn't know that from all the commotion that a the airlines are making about trying to, you know, read you know, kind of re- re- redistribute the wealth, so to speak, and you wouldn't know that from the uh, level of quote unquote importance they're putting on security issues. TSA, I mean, uh, Homeland Security. Well, so I, it can't. It's I, it's you know, on some level, it's more than a pimple. 
TSA is is doing what TSA does, and that is what it's it's. Uh, um, feathering its own bed it's uh, uh we, we discussed mission creep um at tsa in the last episode and and tsa is doing what bureaucracies do try to expand their power and their influence and their budget um all at the same time and they're going about it in a fashion that is predictable um I, from that standpoint i don't really i don't really fault tsa for what they're they're trying to do we'll we'll come back to that though um <clears throat> But I guess oh, the only yeah. thing the the only thing I would like to point out about um the uh, the AOPA interviews of the candidates for president, um one of them does not have much of a track record with respect to general aviation. So in a lot of ways, um his views, his opinions and his policies can be shaped. Um, going forward, the other candidate has a track record. Well, let's not be vague here. The first one you're talking about is Senator Obama. That is correct. Okay. The first, he he doesn't have much of a track record uh, with respect to general aviation. It's just not been something on his radar screen. He hasn't sat on relevant committees. Um, end of discussion. Um, now he 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 was familiar. He was a state senator apparently when. Uh, when uh, uh, Meg's airport uh, was summarily closed in Chicago and, and, and made, took some steps to try to alleviate the pain there. Um, but that's, that is not a general aviation uh, a policy person. Um, that's just representing one's constituents. Uh, the other candidate, John McCain, has a rather lengthy history relative to general aviation. And uh, AOPA is being very... Circumspect, circumspect and professional in their dealings with uh, McCain uh, on the on the overall issue of, of general aviation. There's uh, uh, I've got some links here on my actually on my desktop that I could uh, I'll feed to for, to Jack for the show notes. No, no, you'll put them in the show notes yourself. You can do that okay. now. Right. Uh, oh yeah, that's right. Um, but back in. Uh, um, I don't know, oh two, maybe maybe oh one. No, actually I'm sorry, it was in the nineties. Um Phil Boyer, then and current president of AOPA, and Senator McCain went head to head for weeks on um something that was uh called the uh let me find the exact management advisory council, the FAA Management Advisory Council or MAC. And this comes from 1996 legislation that was enacted by Congress, uh, which created the Management Advisory Council. And President Clinton, as the GA representative to the council, appointed Phil Boyer. The um, appointment needed Senate confirmation. And Boyer and other uh, uh, nominees for the Management Advisory Council trooped up to the Hill and sat before the Senate Commerce Committee, the committee with oversight of the FAA, and whereupon they ran headlong into a certain senator from Arizona. Um, and the, the uh, back and forth, um, not only in that, in that single hearing, but the back and forth, uh, which extended um, on the record and in writing for f several weeks thereafter, 
is pretty epic. Um, suffice it to say... In what way? I mean, can you summarize the, the, the tone well, and the nature of it all? Um, basically, McCain accused Boyer of misrepresenting his position when it comes to user fees. And specifically, it was, it was a, it, a lot of it revolved around uh, McCain's imprecise use of um, the term general aviation. Mm-hmm. And um, Boyer's correct distinction that, uh, or I'm sorry, maybe it was business aviation, okay? Um, Boyer's correct distinction that, well, you know, hey, you know, we got people out here flying two-seat pistons on business. Whether or not the aircraft is being used for personal transportation or business transportation isn't, isn't really relevant to whether or not user fees should be imposed and is a really lousy way to decide whether to impose user fees in the first place. Further, uh, we stand with our brethren at NBAA and Gamma and et cetera um, who are flying Gulf Streams against our bonanzas in our in our uh, kit built aircraft when we all say that there should not be any user fees and and McCain kind of came unglued as he uh, is, is want to do and there was a lengthy series of of exchanges again on the record and in writing between AOPA and McCain on these topics if memory um, serves me right Boyer was never confirmed because Boyer was never yes, thank you. That that's the summation of the tale. Uh Boyer was never confirmed, has never been confirmed, uh, for this management advisory council. I presume it even still exists in law. Um but uh, um if you go to AOPA's website and you search you just go pop in the search window, John McCain, uh you eventually you'll find links to all this mm-hmm. because it's been reported by AOPA over the years and it's and it's still uh, still on the website. There are also, um, you can go to uh, the, the, uh, either, either Thomas, which is the, uh, the congressional website, or um, the uh, Commerce, Senate Commerce Committee's website, and some of, these, some of the, uh, the uh, hearing records are still present uh, on those websites also. And you can see the exchange uh, you can read about all right, this, right. Uh, on these websites. It's, it's, it's very illuminating for me. It's interesting you should mention that because one of the things that I, that I noticed when I was reading these answers, and, and I don't want to read too much into this particular thing because, you know, th- this is what it is. And, yeah. um, but I, it did catch my attention that at one point when M- one of McCain's answers, excuse me, one of Senator McCain's answers was making a distinction between what I took as meaning to be the airlines and general aviation, what they... A- actually wrote was between commercial and general aviation and see that's and that's that's the continued blurring right by senator mccain if uh to, to use your turn of phrase of what general aviation is and how impractical it is to try to distinguish between a for-profit operation of a bonanza and a non-profit operation of a bonanza or a private operation of a bonanza. And and I've had this conversation with TSA personnel in the past when they were developing this this 12-5 rule, and we'll get to TSA here again shortly, but um, you've got a <laughs> business jet. David's growling. I know. we got a business jet 
on a ramp. And I, and I, I physically took some TSA people to a busy general aviation ramp several years ago when they were developing this rule. And, you know, basically said, all right, <clears throat> look out here on this ramp. You see all these airplanes? Yeah. Which of them are being operated under Part 135 and which of them are being operated under Part 91? Tell me right now. Mm-hmm. And they can't do that. <laughs> okay. You, they can't. Yeah. They cannot. They physically cannot do that by simply looking at the airplane. Right. Let's come back to that. So, um, the 10 questions. Uh, uh, Amy or Dave, uh, do you have any re- reaction to these answers? Uh, not without being political. Uh huh. Well, you know, and. Do you want that? I, I know. I, I don't want you to be. Purely political, but I but I want you to ref, I want you to tell us what you think about these two candidates, uh, uh, wh- what they will mean to general I think, aviation. I think McCain would have us with user fees very quickly, and I think that Obama is an is a blank page. Mm-hmm. Um, I I agree completely with Jeb. Okay, um, there's a statement in here. Um, let me see if I can find it. While you're looking for that, let me, David. Do you have any any reaction yeah, to this? While he's looking that up, uh, I got to come back to a couple of things here. Oh, First okay. is the relationship between McCain and General Aviation back all those years ago has not, from anything I've seen, read, or heard, been changed in any way, shape, or form. He was of an opinion that. Far too many of us were rich, fat cats who didn't deserve to uh, have access to the airspace without paying fees to do so. Right, like his wife. And that we were, you know, suspect because some of us deemed to operate in a way that took us out of the airlines, and how could we do that? Uh, So I've seen nothing that's changed that over the years. Uh, Second, i got to agree with Amy. Uh, when it comes to the Arizona senior senators' support for the uh, uh, business community, particularly the larger end of the business community, uh, his current campaign stance on a variety of issues do nothing but reinforce that attitude, uh, which you know leaves me to feel, to believe, that we would be on the short end, we being private operators, would be on the short end of a stick uh, as far as Senator McCain is concerned in any contest between GA and the commercial carriage industry, Uh, those folks that ply around human mailing tubes in hopes of gaining profitable revenue. And that's a fiction that's uh, pretty widespread right now. Anyway, so, you know, any help that he could give them is going to be right up his existing policy alley uh and and third you know i'm a little disappointed uh, and this is kind of a side note i'm a little disappointed that aopa has uh as it's done in the last couple of presidential races presented us this information as if both sides uh, have equally good and bad yeah. things to say and that's simply not true they had no trouble telling me or advising me or suggesting to me which of the senatorial candidates I should vote for in Kansas. Right. Likewise, up here in New York. All other issues being weighed into the uh, uh, same bucket with aviation, and the guy that they suggested I lose for, I I vote for, is a major loser in my (laughs) mind, and has been for most of his three past terms. Uh, But that said, 
he has been very supportive of GA. He has well, gone in GA's corner. But what the hell would you expect out of a senator from Kansas? Right. You yeah, know, right. I mean, like you're gonna we're gonna elect a senator from Kansas, and he's gonna show up and be anti GA. Yeah. Please, yeah. anybody that Kansas sends up to Washington D.C., whether on the Senate side or the House of Representatives side, is going to flog for the hometown industry, the home state industry. That's going to be oil, cows, grain, and airplanes. Mm -hmm. And I don't care how they felt before they got there or what they knew before they got there. When they get there, they're going to be believers. So uh, uh, it, it, it frosted me just a touch to get emails and mailers suggesting that I vote for this loser politically this uh, fellow that has not been any big help to the uh, folks in my community who fly and don't fly, who have to depend on an average income and a working wage to pay for their avgas, and suddenly I'm supposed to support him because he's always been in GA corners. And then they take a buy on this and say, well, we don't want to take sides here. We'll just present both of them as if they're equal. They are not equal. They won't be equal in office. And Amy's, you know, uh, observation that in a lot of ways uh, Senator Obama is a blank slate is, 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 you know, got merit to it. Yeah. I think that was Jeb's point, but yes. The totality of what the guy stands for and where he's going, uh, and even some of his answers. uh, I got to. I don't think there's a contest here, but that's just me. Yeah, yeah and, and I think Amy and I both made the same point. She used the phrase blank slate. Okay. Um, uh, the, the other thing here, and, and this is based historically on, on uh, um, when Senator McCain was chairman of uh, Senate Commerce Committee and, and responsible for, for aviation legislation, basically – Behind his back, he was kind of sort of referred to as the senator from America West. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember those because, days. Because he was um, very, very tone deaf to uh, in the needs of any aviation industry segment other than the airlines and, and did everything he could to, to support America West. Um, not so much to the detriment of, of um, general aviation, although that was the case, but it was – to the exclusion of of uh, other issues and other uh, uh, other participants. Yeah. Uh, one one thing though, I wanted to point out is is uh, when we're looking here at the the answers that both candidates submitted, um, Senator McCain's response to the question of should FAA's air traffic control system be privatized is a fairly lengthy paragraph. I don't know, four or five sentences. Uh, it's it takes up. Uh, um, about four times is the length of the response from Senator Obama. Senator Obama's response on the issue of privatization is very succinct and very simple. And I'll quote it. I am firmly opposed to privatizing the air traffic control system, and I believe the air traffic control is a governmental function. Mm-hmm. Period. Yeah. yeah. Um, we should move on here, but I I, I want to call attention to one uh, of the answers that I thought was kind of notable. Um, I, I knew this going in, and the the answer given reaffirms it, and that is that Senator McCain is is particularly proud of Homeland Security and the TSA, and uh, 
and it appears from his answer that he's not not very troubled at all about the idea of expanding its reach into general aviation, and that that troubles me a lot as well. That troubles me a lot. Uh, the TSA's unpublished proposal troubles me a lot, as we've as we've mentioned in the past. Yeah. Uh, but the uh, the pride uh, that goes behind the the, the hasty the hasty hectic. Uh, poorly thought out uh, legislation that went behind the TSA, uh, the massive expansion in government, uh, uh, the size of the government, government power, in essence, in response to a perception that private security had done something wrong right. and failed in some way on 9-1-1-2001, which is not borne out by the facts. Uh, that's always troubled me. And, you know, you won't hear me say this very often, and certainly probably not after November 5th, but in Senator McCain's defense, he was not the only one that, you know, jumped on this bandwagon and swallowed this Kool-Aid. Uh, and I'm not without a little bit of hope and optimism that one of the changes that we can see occur starting in 2009, is some uh, modification of the Patriot Act, uh, the Aviation Security Act, and a, uh, a tweaking of the TSA's mandate to make it more realistic, to make it uh, more constitutional, to make some of this stuff actually fit uh, under the umbrella of the laws that this country uh, was founded on and, and what people around the world look up to that uh, might be a little missing in some areas right now. Not that we feel strongly about this. Yeah. Not that we feel strongly about yeah. that. Anyways, um, let's move on. Unless anybody has something they really want to add to this to kind of wrap it up. But, uh, no, uh, nope. I, I would say this, though, to, to our listeners. Uh, um, hopefully you will, you will uh, listen to this before the election. Um, irrespective, uh, truly, get out there and vote. Oh yeah, that's right. Whatever you whatever you think is the right thing to do, yeah. do it because yeah. God knows I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. <laughs> I won't lie to you. I'm gonna I'm gonna check a box, but but you know it's my best guess. It's mm-hmm. my yeah. best yeah. guess of what I think is going to be the good thing so, to do. And as usual, uh, you could go to uh, aopa.org uh, and because of the timeliness of this, I'll say that it's aopa.org/feature/election08 is the uh, URL, and that will also be in the show notes, so you can tra- check that out. But check out the answers. Check out all the information you can about these candidates. Make your choice and vote on the 5th. Well, um, yeah, um, don't, I don't know, I, don't know. I, I feel I, I'm of two minds on this. I generally caution people not to to uh, make their voting decisions based on general aviation alone. Mm-hmm. That's right. Nobody, yeah. nobody should be a single-issue voter right. any time anyway. Yeah. Okay. Not that I feel strongly about that either. Moving on. Take a drink. Uh, let's see now. This past oh, week... Wait, 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 wait. What, what, oh. what, what, what? Never mind. It's twist off. <laughs> <laughs> this past week, um, in what has been described as a surprise announcement, uh, Lockheed Martin has announced that they are going to be closing five of the satellite flight service stations around the country. Um, so... The only, I don't know. There's so many jokes here. I was working on jokes like, well, that leaves one left, or you know, yeah. you know, it, you face it. You know, we really only we really only need one flight service station, and that's the one in Bangla- Bangalore. You know, so. Uh, <laughs> 
Um, Hello, where will you be flying today? <laughs> yeah. They have announced that they are going to be closing Oakland, San Diego, Denver, Albuquerque, and Macon, Georgia. Oh, uh, Albuquerque, that's cruel. There's like nothing out there if they yeah, close yeah. Albuquerque. Yeah. So uh, what do you guys where think about this? Factories are nothing. That's right. What do you think about this? Macon, Macon's a big loss because yeah, uh, uh, Georgia, the state of Georgia, has the largest uh, area of any state east of the Mississippi River, and there's only one flight service station in the state. So, uh, I, I think it's. I think it's. Um, uh, How many of these flight service stations are left these days? Not a lot. Gainesville, I assume, but you know that's only on a lark that you even get there. Yeah, you got St. Pete and Miami in Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, th- this AOPA story on their website, um, unless I'm missing it in a quick scan here, I don't see where they give uh, a number. Yeah, of I have. the flight well, service. Well, just say stations. that most calls are routed to one of three hubs: Ashburn, Virginia, Fort Worth, Texas, and Prescott, Arizona. There's Arizona mm-hmm. again. No, uh, I get Miami a lot. You know, uh, this was a stupid freaking idea to begin with. <laughs> okay. Thank you, David. <laughs> okay. um, and and I, I think AOPA really... Now, David, when you say it's a bad idea, you mean to move it over to Lockheed? I mean, yes. Yeah. Flight service is, as Senator Obama pointed out for air traffic, a government function. And unfortunately, AOPA swallowed some Kool-Aid in this on the idea that a private contractor would modernize technology to the point that we would get better service faster through higher tech. And I'm still, you know, I'm, 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 hold, I'm going to hold my breath so bloody long I'm beginning to look like Papa Smurf. Hey, everything works except the part where there's no meteorologist on the other end of the line. There's no expert. There's nobody that I feel like is a team player that I can talk with about this. There's some idiot reading me the weather just as well as I could read it online. Oh, no, 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 not according to this. Uh, Because of the (laughs) system routes calls to specialists knowledgeable about the particular flight area, regardless of where that specialist might be physically located. I saw that quote, yeah. Oh, that's like it only takes three weeks to get a special issuance out of Oklahoma City these days. I can tell you all the people who call once a week to find out why they don't have their special issuance uh, uh, medical right now. It's yeah, the same like, thing. It's Go like ahead. asking CNBC's Jim Cramer if if you should buy or sell some stock. Yeah. Well, this this, this was this was one of the handful of times when I've looked at at, at AOPA's position on this and went, uh-huh. big mistake, guys, big yeah. mistake. Because yeah. the idea that a private contractor can for less money somehow provides superior service through the dent of magic capitalism uh, has has so far been pretty much proven 100% wrong uh-huh. in other areas. Ever uh, been to an airport with a Wacken Hut tower? Oh, uh, Chimini, Christmas. Uh, how about, uh, uh, well, my, my brain just... My brain just short-circuited. This is so ludicrous. Amy, uh, how is a Wackenhut Tower? Amy, how is a Wackenhut Tower d- yeah, distinctive? 
Uh, it, generally speaking, the the services you get from the air traffic controllers there is not as good as at a government tower. Mm-hmm. I can tell you that. Uh, the quality is not there. Um, the enthusiasm, uh, they're not getting paid as much. Let me put it to you that way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's the thing here. We're going to find private citizens willing to work for less than the government specialists. We're going to give them fewer benefits. There's going to be fewer reasons for them to work there, but they're going to be superior. They're right. going to be superior because we're going to make a profit doing it. And the government does it for no profit at all. Well, that's where that extra money goes. Is the government not making a profit? It goes to ded- to the dedicated people that do the job, that stay on the job to become the experts. And, and training. So Did I mention training? Oh, gee, many. and what's really troubling about this is I was at AOPA on staff there uh, in 1983 when President Reagan went through the, uh, uh, we're going to consolidate 480-odd flight service stations into 61 automated stations, and you're going to get better surface. You're going to get superior quality service. And... Fortunately, they didn't do away with a lot of the people. Yeah. So you had, you know, Rolla, the specialist from Rolla, Missouri, move into someplace else there, local, where he was still fielding local phone calls, along with flight service station personnel from Iowa and Kansas. And, and uh, then we had Lockmart pick up the contract, and they said, Folks, come over and work for here. This is what you're going to get in the way of pay and benefits. And a whole lot of guys, uh, a whole lot of ladies with a whole lot of time went, I am out of here. So we're training somehow. I've never understood how that supposedly works. We pluck a body out of the unemployment lines. We stick them in a seat, give them a headset, a microphone, and a radio key switch, we teach them how to use the system. We don't really, you know, depend on them knowing what the lingo means. And we say, okay, and you're going to specialize in this area over here, Kansas, Missouri, Florida, Georgia, whatever. And they're going to get that knowledge. They're going to be experts in the weather around there on, on the basis of what? Yeah. They don't Their even lengthy do time in the seat, their years of observing the weather channel, uh, I'm sorry, but the specialists that worked there were like air traffic control staff in towers and tracons. It took years for them to come along and develop that expertise. And it sure. didn't come cheaply, and it shouldn't come cheaply, because there's people's lives that depend on it. So this should have never gone into private contract. And maybe, maybe this little fiasco here, when they, when Flockmart rolls it down to one facility and yeah. they decide to put it in, you know, some favorite congressman or senator's district, maybe there'll be enough of an uproar among GA and AOPA will come back around and go back to Congress and say, well, we tried this. It was an experiment that didn't work. It needs to go back to the FAA. Yep. Well, David, now that you're all warmed up, let's move on to the uh, subject we've all been waiting for here, which is, uh, uh, David, in the notes you you wrote, David, this week's TSA LASP moment, and you didn't give us a link. Right, large what, aircraft security program. That's the, that's the program. I'm to do this periodically. 
This is the uh, as yet unpublished. We're hearing maybe next week. Right. Uh, and before you go into this, from the TSA, yeah. before you move on, uh, David, before what? you give us an update here, I want to talk about this this unpublished aspect of it. Right. Um, right. It, 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 this is kind of interesting that uh, um, they haven't started the clock on this whole thing yet. They haven't officially published this. Jeb, you apparently have been tracking this. What's the story here? I have been. Um, The document that's floating around is basically a pre-publication document. Um, It is formatted for insertion in the Federal Register. Federal Register, for for those who may not be aware, is is literally a a daily book published by the federal government um, that provides uh, basically a copy of all the, the rules and regulations, all the proposals, uh, all presidential actions, um, a variety of other uh, pieces of information um, surround, involving the federal government. It is, again, published every weekday except federal holidays, uh, and its thickness literally ranges from um, uh, a good-sized telephone book to uh, uh, just a few pages. Um, the uh, the way this works is federal agencies submit to the Office of the Federal Register uh, the proposals, the documents that they need to publish in the Federal Register. And um, the document that is floating around, it's in PDF, uh, it's, it's typical, it's formatted correctly, it's, it is ready to go into the Federal Register and has been supposedly ready since like October 9 or something like that, um, but it hasn't been printed, it hasn't been published, and this proposal is not an official formal proposal with an official formal comment period until it is published in the Federal Register. So what's this all about? Is this is this some sort of uh, wheeling and dealing? Is, is this just a trial balloon and they're really not going to publish this thing? What, what? I, if, if No. I, I don't give the, the TSA that much credit. Um, I think someone screwed up. Yeah. And, and, and I think it's a combination of them screwing up or them trying to... Um, and then there's two or three th- ways this could be going. Th- they could have simply screwed up, okay, and someone was playing fast and loose. Uh, this came out the day after the, the NBAA convention earlier this month. Right. And that's a little side story that I'm sure Dave will get to in a moment. Um, so either there was a little infighting going on within the TSA, and one faction wanted to kind of slap the other one down and release this the, the, the day after the NBAA event. Or it was a slapdown directed at the industry itself because they went into NBAA saying, yeah, we want to listen to you, we want to work with you, we want to do this, we want to do the other thing. A big, wet, sloppy one. And the next day, they throw this thing out okay, on, on, the, on, the, uh, on the dresser uh, table. Um, or um, it's, it's all by design that they wanted to throw this thing out there some faction at TSA wanted to get this out there, and uh, knowing that it would be incendiary mm-hmm. for the industry, um, and they wanted, um, they didn't want to do this, but they went ahead and threw it out there 
so that the opposition would build and and the the industry would really try to beat back on this because some faction within the TSA doesn't want to do this either. Ah, I see. Okay. So, I, but but which of those scenarios is the case? I have no clue, and I'll tell you what: I'm probably wrong on all three of them, and mm-hmm. there's probably some other fourth or fifth scenario that I don't know anything about. Yeah. But, well, the but, fact of the matter is, TSA doesn't have to have a comment period. Am I wrong about that? They can. Yes, you are. You are. They, you are technically wrong, but not in practice, because this is actually the first time the TSA has. Uh, you know, actually shown signs of employing the full scope of what's known as the Administrative Procedures Act, which is yes. a law from decades ago that lays out how proposed regulations need to be published in the Federal Register. They need to allow comment from the users and the affected people, comments taken into effect, and then a final proposal published and, you know, Hang on, hang on, Jeb, Jeb. Jeb, what were you going to say? Go ahead. Time out. That's that's not necessarily the case. They have, on on several occasions over their short history, uh, published proposals, proposed rules, uh, accepted comments from the public, and based on those comments, revised their proposal before implementing a rule, just as the FAA does, just as other agencies have done. TSA has? TSA has, yes. 12-5 rules. Give me an example. 12-5 12-5 rule. That was a direct two. No, no, it wasn't. You sure? Yeah. What's a direct two? Well, the direct two is the other, is the, they'll declare an emergency exists, mm-hmm. and they have no other option but to put forth this regulation. Okay. And um, it is effective immediately. They'll take comments on it, and they'll revise it at some point in the future. But in the meantime, you have to comply with its standard, with, with its provisions right now. And they and have the, done that. And the FAA does that with emergency oh. airworthiness directives. Okay. The right. FAA does that, but the FAA does it a minority of the time. The TSA, if memory serves, is done at the majority of the time. No argument. Um, I, I'm, only, I'm only pointing out that the TSA has, in, in fact, um, done comment periods. They did it with the, with the twelve five rule. Um, they um, slipped their implementation schedule on several occasions because they have done that. They're, in, but I, they're, in, I think they're they... incompetent. But that's another issue. Um, this this is a what they've done here is like step thirty seven of one thousand. Uh, that have to occur right. under the Administrative Procedures Act before this regulation can go into effect uh, under the normal process. Nothing in that normal process precludes them from using another process uh, and putting this thing into into place immediately. Yeah. So the thing I thought that was of note um, it, that I wanted to call attention to was the fact that this this proposed rule is not the, the clock hasn't started on it yet. With all the right. with with all the craziness and all the uh, the uproar about this, um, it it actually the comment period hasn't begun and it hasn't even gotten rolling yet. Um, and and, and it, it is stunning the difference between the public face and the public statements of the alphabet groups in their response to the TSA and the conversations that are going on among them about this and between some of the associations and some of their members about this, uh, they are livid uh, that they were led down a road to believe that 
there was going to be true acknowledgement of the differences between general aviation and commercial, and I use commercial here in all its incarnations, scheduled, non-scheduled, charter, air taxi, anything where somebody's charging for the airplane to move, whether they're filling a seat or filling a cargo compartment, up to and including the head people of the TSA showing up at the National Business Aviation Association Convention and giving a public briefing on uh, October 8th, all full of, we've listened to you, we've been working on this for almost three years, we've taken this all into account, you're going to like this proposal. And then this puppy leaks out on the 9th, and the sense of betrayal, the sense of being out and out lied to, is probably the greatest that I've seen in 30-odd years of knocking around this and being involved and talking to regulatory and uh, safety and association officials. I've never heard anything on the backside like what I'm hearing out of these folks right now. And I had some opportunity at uh, an aviation event earlier this week to have some of these conversations face-to-face. And, you know, the prerequisite, are we on or off the record moment (laughs) came in all of them. And, you know, let's just talk off the record, because I'm really interested in the visceral gut level. What do you guys really think? Where are you guys really headed? And the visceral, what do we think where we really headed is not in some way suitable for family publication. Yeah, interesting. Which I make no claims that we are. Yeah. Uh, but... Uh, some of these conversations highlighted some of the little details that I glossed over in my initial reads of the 260 pages that go into this unpublished proposal, which spurred me to the idea of a uh, periodic TSA follies item while this proposal was in play. And that brings us to this week's. Drum roll, please. I'm reading from a section of the TSA website called prohibited items Ooh, okay and the language here is obviously geared to the commercial airline traveler because that's the uh, predominance of the the people that they have to worry about and deal with don't let a prohibited item ruin your trip <laughs> you are permitted to travel with most items but you must put them in your luggage and check them with your airline certain items are prohibited from carry-on luggage for the overall security of air travelers Prohibited items obviously include weapons, explosives, and incendiaries, but also items that are seemingly harmless and may be used as weapons like hammers, bats, or mace. You may not bring these items to the security check. Which brings us to this week's folly. Part of the proposal is for the general aviation community to explain to the TSA uh, or to help the TSA decide how to prevent those prohibited items from being in your private aircraft. Oh, you must be kidding. No. Kid, do you hear me chuckling? Yeah, go ahead. Amy, do you have a they, copy of this proposal? Not, they, they not want, right in front of me, but, but copy, it just baffles the mind. Yes, I have a copy of it. but They, they want guidance. They, the they've actually put out a series of questions to the alphabet groups that they want help answering. And one of them is how to assure 
that none of the prohibited items are allowed in the cabin with the passengers. <laughs> but who cares? Exactly. Well, that's really the root of the whole opposition to the whole freaking proposal. These are private aircraft. Right. Who cares? I carry the tools I need to fix the airplane if it breaks along the way. Mm-hmm. And I know just people who actually think it's said you can't. I actually know people who think it smart, safe, good thinking, advanced planning to carry things like a crash axe. By any occupant of the passenger cabin for the off chance that they may need the crash axe to escape from a damaged aircraft. I know people who fly in back areas of the world where a survival knife and a survival rifle are considered standard equipment, but you wouldn't want those where anybody that might need them could reach them, according to this proposal. Every Cirrus that's produced yep. has a ball peen ham- hammer in it as an emergency yep. um, how item. About, it comes how about with emergency? The how about emergency flares? We're going to want those safely stored in the luggage compartment, oh, yeah, where right. they're useless. Yeah. If okay. you need them, and the aircraft crashes and burns. While you escape with no incendiary devices, the incendiary devices go up in the fire, leaving you helpless to signal the search and rescue people. There is so much totally stupid about this. And by the way, that's the initials of the authors, TSA. There's so much totally stupid about this. I'm off of it. That's this week's stupid TSA tricks. We'll have more in coming weeks. <laughs> Just, we need we need like a little uh, we need like a little uh, uh, a bumper sound a sound effect that says you know da 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 da. All right, uh, moving on here, Amy. Uh, you know, and and I think I think everyone here will have an opinion on. Well, I'm not sure, but I would imagine that others will have opinions about this. But you're the flight instructor in the in the hangar tonight, and so I wanted to ask you what your take was on. Um, apparently, there's some sort of of, of controversy brewing in uh, NAFI, the what is it, the National Association of Flight Instructors? National yes. Association of Flight Instructors. And uh, I hadn't been aware of this until I saw a story in Aero News recently. Um, but uh, tell tell us what's going on uh, with this whole okay. thing. Okay. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna actually take you back to a letter that was written by uh, Doug Stort. We all know Doug Stort. Doug is a, is a noted um, flight instructor in the industry, a master CFI, and, and a good, good guy. And it was actually written to Tom Pobresny, because as you and, know, NAFI comes under the EAA's uh, umbrella. Now, let me, let me just, before you, before you move on, just let me ask sure. you two quick questions. Yeah. Um, just for disclosure's sake, are you a member of NAFI? I have been a member of NAFI. I'm actually holding on to this year's application, and I spoke with uh, Patricia Delmer, who is their um, executive assistant there, and I said, I, I need to see how things fall. Yeah, and, and are you send in. So are you one holding, of Wait a minute, I'm sorry. holding re-enlistment until you see how this shakes out. I am. And, and, I, and my second question for Amy is, are you one of these master CFIs? I am not a master CFI, but that's okay. mostly because I'm, I'm, I, I have an issue with paperwork. Okay. All right. So I'm sorry to have interrupted you. Go ahead. So uh... okay. I, I won't do much of it. I do the minimum. Um, but how can you that, be a CFI and not want to do paperwork? I thought you know. It's... Oh, not want to do paperwork oh, and not do paperwork. I do 
what's necessary. Uh-huh. Don't misunderstand. Okay. okay. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Now continue with your, your okay. telling us the yeah, backstory. <laughs> what has been happening at the National Association of Flight Instructors is essentially a power struggle at the top. And there are some very, very good people at the top. Um, and there are some people who work harder than others, as is often the case with the board of directors of a nonprofit or any kind of association. And there is um, an issue right now with who's going to be in power based on a coalition within the board of directors and what they're trying to do. And there are a lot of people who feel strongly that this is wrong Mm -hmm. and that no one should be able to oust anybody else from the board, Um, particularly not people who really are not a problem at all. In fact, they're people who are working very hard and whose names are on just about everything that NAFI does. So um, there are a lot of master CFIs who will not stand for it. That's really what it what it's coming down to. Mm-hmm. And I'm doing this without naming names because I think that's probably important. I think if you want if you want to know what's going on, uh, certainly the Aero News uh, story is a good start. I highly recommend you call Doug Stewart or uh, Greg Laszlo or Tom Poberesny. Isn't or, that meeting going on tonight? Yeah, yeah, Arlen McMahon. I mean, I, I highly recommend you call or, or email any one of those people, and they'd be happy to send this to you. Um, NAFI has a code of ethics, and the real stand-up point is that if they go ahead and they oust these people, they will not be adhering to their own code of ethics. And that's where people are really, really getting out of, been out of shape. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. You other guys have any thoughts on this whole thing? Well, what's, the... What's the objective here, Amy? Do you know offhand? Yeah, the objective is a power grab. The, the result is difficult to say. Um, I don't understand why you'd want to grab power from these people other than their name tends to be on just about everything. Was the Master Flight Instructor Program a lucrative one for NAFI? I don't know about lucrative, but it certainly had a certain energy. And they worked very hard to create it. They had to be liaisons with the FAA. You basically, because you're a master CFI, if you renew each year, you never have to renew your flight instructor certificate. Uh-huh. It, it counts as a, as a renewal. And since it costs about $100 a year to do that, it's about, you, you come out about even. Uh-huh. Since right. every two years you would have to renew your flight instructor rating right. one way or another. And most of those ways require an outlay of cash. So, so for the flight instructor, it is a way to increase your standing within the flight instructor community. Because you do actually have to do quite a few things. And even more so, you have to document having done them, which has always been the, the stickler for me. <laughs> that, 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 look... Uh, Sandy, Sandy and Joanne Hill are so annoyed with me because they, they wanted me to be one of the first 
master CFIs. And quite frankly, I had toddlers at the time and Mm -hmm. getting the paperwork together was more than I was, I was ready to do for them. And they were very disappointed. Greg Brown did it for them. He was wonderful. Um, they came back and said, but you could be the first woman. And I said, yeah, I, I hear you. I have a three-year-old and I have a four-year-old and a lot of other things going on. And I love your idea and I'll support it, but I can't do it right now. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, that, that's the God's honest truth. I, I truly support what they're doing with the master CFI. And I know flight schools out there who will only hire master CFIs. Just to uh, give you some okay. idea of where that standing is. Um, but honestly, that in my mind is Sandy and Joanne Hill. And NAFI is who they work for. Mm-hmm. So it would be a sticky point if Sandy and Joanne Hill were no longer associated with NAFI. Well, Sandy and Joanne Hill are board members or they are staff board at Board members and I believe they're staff. They're paid they, staff. They, yeah. They, 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 are, they are principals in terms of getting the, getting the work done there. Mm-hmm. Now, if somebody, if somebody wants to correct me on that, let them have at it. But this is the way I've known it for a long, long time. Okay. And are they, wh- where do they reside? Where do they uh, work from? Oh, where do they live? Because <laughs> there's there's a reference in this news story about uh, relocating the program to Oshkosh. Uh, NAFI, of course, is a an affiliated organization. Affiliated, I I don't know what the correct term they is. Don't, they don't. I know they don't live affiliated, in Oshkosh. Yeah, they're affiliated with EAA in some fashion. Yeah, I know they don't live in Oshkosh, but but I'm still trying to figure out why they would have to. Okay. Uh, we're not even going to go down that path. Yeah. Today. Yeah. I don't live okay. in Ohio, and the company I work for is there. Right. Yeah. We'll follow up on this, but uh, sounds pretty interesting. Sounds kind of unfortunate, actually, but uh, um, we'll see where it goes. Very unfortunate. Yeah. yeah. So we'll see where it goes. Yeah, and, and I, you know, I've always had a good, good vibe about NAFI and about the Master Instructor Program, and 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 all this, and they don't need this kind of PR. Yeah. No, they really, really don't. Um, and I, it, it, you know, I have felt very strongly about it. I really haven't done anything in, in the news because I really wanted to see how it how it um, came out. Mm-hmm. Honestly, and, well, this, and, and this is strictly a guess on my part, and I should probably think twice before I even say this. Uh, why start I, now? Why start now? But at the end of the day. This is going to come down to, I have a feeling, uh, power and money. Yeah. And controlling the power and, 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 and tightening up does. on the money. And, uh, you know, the uh, the folks that you're talking about, the Hills, I've, I, I don't know them. I haven't met them. But I've always had a great deal of respect for NAFI. And, you know, there are times when associations go through upheavals where – Folks on one side are just certain that there's a better way to do it, and their way is the better way to do it. And, you know, it, it always distills down to one of two things, and sometimes a combination of both, power and money. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Moving on. Um, Take a drink. 
This is, uh, uh, I, I, sorry to drop you this, but I forgot that I wanted to put this on the list, and so I've just added it. Um, and that is, uh, David, first of all, David, I have to say that you are doing some awesome writing for the UCAP blog these days. And uh, I, I, we all who read these things appreciate that. Um, and your latest effort there is uh, uh, an account that I haven't had a chance to read all of it yet, I, I confess. But uh, but you wrote a bit about the, uh, the, the little safety woodstock that you went to. Um, over the last few days. I'm sorry. It's the uh, Bombardier Safety Stand Down. Is that the proper name of it, David? That's the correct name. Yeah. And uh, and and you wrote an interesting piece there and you've refer- you you've sort of alluded to it a couple times tonight and uh, I, I just wondered if there was anything you kind of want to share with us. You've talked about it in past years on the podcast and uh, uh, anything new and cool happened there this past uh, week or few days? Well, the uh, you know in the uh effort to keep this thing fresh in some ways, Uh, you know, predominantly safety stand-down, quick background, you know, since I don't want to assume anybody's read this or or knows what I'm talking about, but safety stand-down is an annual four-day affair here in the States. They also do a two-day one in Europe in relation, in, in coordination with the European Business Aviation Conference and Exhibition. But the big one is here in the United States. Eleven of the twelve years it's happened, it's been here in Wichita. Uh, started uh, eleven years ago as an in-house event at Learjet to deal with some safety issues that the uh, uh, demonstration team, flight department, had experienced, and some of the uh, production flights crew had experienced. Uh, was handful of pilots in-house. The next year, it was a larger group of uh, Learjet and Bombardier flight test pilots. And then they started publicizing it a little bit in the in, in the aspect of they let people know that they were going to this extra effort to make their flight crews safer. And they opened it up to the public in the third year, and it's been public. Uh, this is the tenth year that it's been open to the public. But it is a four-day conference that deals partly with hands-on training for things like water ditching, uh, life raft handling, smoke-filled cabin evacuations. That takes up the opening day. The remaining three days are a series of lectures on various human factor aspects of aviation safety. Fatigue, psychology, judgment calls, uh, thinking flexibly, uh, taking into account operational aspects that don't generally come up in simulator or regular flight training. And what impressed me about this year, this year is the first year that it was operated without the guy that actually spark-plugged this and got it started. Bob Agostino left the organization uh, last year. He's gone on to new things, uh, uh, running a corporate flight department out of a, Latro- or a corporate uh, flying organization out of Latrobe, Pennsylvania. Uh the uh, the uh, uh, seminar this year had some fresh faces. It had some fresh information. Uh, there'll be a link on the uh, on the podcast website about this. You can see what the agenda was. But we listened to speakers who talk about things like rest cycles, which, if you're flying corporate aircraft, as most of these participants do. Uh, you might fly a Global Express 14 hours across the pond and a continent to some place and then not get but 
one day's rest where your body's completely whipsawed by the time zone changes in all the time you spend in the air and have to fly that aircraft 10 or 12 hours back to another destination or onward around the world. Uh, so one of the lecturers talks about the, uh, the health and safety aspects of rest cycles, of uh, fatigue. Uh, we had one here that talked about uh, uh, adapting to runway conditions, how pilots tend to get into a mindset that the runway is the usable runway is the number published on the charts or plates, when in fact a lot can change about the effective availability of a runway based on contamination, weather, uh, temperature, density, altitude, uh, whether it slopes downhill or uphill, and how in, in light of those factors, we need to do things like control our thought process make adjustments according to those conditions. Uh, it can be fairly intensive. It can be a little bit like drinking from a fire hose. Uh, there's an awful lot of PhDs that stand up there, uh, almost all of whom are aviators or have aviation backgrounds. Mm -hmm. uh, it even goes as far as uh, the uh, lecture by uh, a, a Wichita uh, aviation medical examiner, senior AMA, named uh, Larry Lay, Dr. Lawrence Lay. Uh, his resume is one of the most staggering things that I've ever seen. Uh, he's an osteopathic doctor. He's also a Ph.D. in, uh, in aviation uh, uh, aerodynamics and structures. Uh, he's also a uh, qualified emergency medical technician, He's a CFII in fixed wing and helicopters. He flies emergency medical service helicopters part-time. He's got his practice. He's also a Czech airman, uh, and he's doing flight instruction work. And in his copious free time, he comes to stand down and talks about how we're the pilot in command of our health as well as our aircraft and how our health can affect how we fly. So... Stand down this year was a real treat for me because for the first time in a long time, I wasn't working as a journalist or a photographer from, for one outfit or another. I was there strictly as a pilot interested in being safer and staying alive longer. Yeah. Now, do you get to go to this because you're Dave Higdon, or uh, could mere mortals go to this? How, how does it work? Oh, no, no, no. I, I have to put my name on the list like everybody else. Uh-huh. Uh, now, I'm sensitive to when they open registration to this, and I usually make my put, if I'm interested at all in going, I make my put uh, within two or three days of registration opening because uh, the capacity for stand-down has grown over the years. Uh, and it is targeted to people who fly primarily for business not just corporate pilots, but people who may fly their own private jet or their own private turboprop or their own private piston on business, uh, because a lot of the scenarios that they deal with here are corporate aircraft or aircraft being used for business purposes who go astray somehow or another. Uh, those are some of the scenarios brought up. Uh, a couple of standout, and, and I put my name in really early because this year, for example, they had slots for about 600 people, and they had about a thousand people 
request to attend. Yeah, yeah I bet. I'm not surprised. And the big thing about this is that the cost to the participant is uh, solely the cost of your transportation and your lodging. Bombardier has never charged the participants to come to this thing. And I got to tell you, they got to be spending more than a couple hundred bucks a head in my mind. Yeah. I actually yeah. went to the trouble of trying to figure this out this year. There are four days of presentations by people that are compensated in some way for being there. There are four days of continental breakfasts and lunches, two evening meals or a reception and an, and an evening banquet. Uh, there's all the collateral material that's pulled together, which is a three-ring binder about three to four inches thick with material from the presentations that you're going to see. Uh, there's uh, uh, usually a few copies of some of the books that some of the presenters have authored, uh, a T-shirt, a briefcase to carry it all away in, uh, the communications that they do directly with the participants. This is not an inexpensive effort. And then there's all the staff time by the folks at the Learjet facility here in Wichita that have been the organizers and the spark plugs behind this all of these years, their staff time goes into it. From what I understand, there's not a lot of overtime compensation given on this for them doing the extra work that it takes to do this around their regular work on their jobs, and they're in the flight demonstration team, the flight department that moves the airplanes around the world to demonstrate for customers and to take the air shows. Uh, and, and fly-ins and events like NBAA. Uh, for these folks, this is as much a labor of love as it is part of their job description. And I admire them greatly. They do a hell of a job. Uh, but Bombardier has always uh, had a much higher place in my uh, thinking for the fact that they've staged this all these years without charging the participants. Yeah, it sounds great. I've always been been envious when you've talked about it on the podcast over the past couple of years, and uh, maybe one of these days I'll try and get my name on the list and attend it and see whether I can, you know, win the lottery. But uh, well, it sounds I, great. I, I met a lot of I met a lot of pilots this year uh, because I was there just as a Joe Aviator, uh, uh, Joe the Aviator. Wow, that makes me sound like <laughs> the, Don't not, go there. Don't, don't go there. Don't even go there. Don't go there. But quite a number of the uh, quite a number of the uh, uh, corporate jet pilots that I met were also very active GA pilots, and in quite a number of instances, aircraft owners, GA aircraft owners, piston aircraft owners. Yeah. And uh, it was interesting to visit with some of these guys and realize how much of this stuff that they feel is valuable for their personal and family flying as it is for their job flying. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. these are predominantly, by the way, Part 91 operators. Mm -hmm. These are not predominantly 135 charter or air taxi or uh, fractional pilots, yeah. although quite a number of those there, too. Yeah. These are largely aircraft operated privately, yep. just yep. like you would. Yours, Jeb, does the Debbie, and I am... 
mine when I have another one. Yeah. Sounds great. Um, uh, uh, people should check out the uh, Bombardier site regarding this and also check out the, the uh, cool report that uh, Dave has written in the blog. Uh, as of right now, it's on the front page of uh, uncontrolledairspace.com. And uh, it'll, even and when it. Thank you for the kind words about this. this is, I'm, I'm trying to make a weekly post here about something that comes across in the uh, aviation world that I get to occupy. And, uh, uh, the acceptance has been really more than I expected. Yeah, and, and no, they're terrific. They're terrific. I, I'm enjoying them, and I know I'm hearing from other listeners who are enjoying them too. Um, we need to move on here. Um, so, uh, Amy, um, so Amy, you found a device that we can use and put in our airplanes to make ADSB affordable, huh? Good for you. Yeah, well, uh, it's it's coming. It's no coming. more worries here. Just it's no more worries. Actually, this is interesting. Uh, they even have a portable version of it for fifteen hundred dollars. Tell us what tell us what this is now. Books. It's called NavWorks, and uh, in a lot of books, fifteen hundred dollars is affordable. And in fact, Tim Olson, the uh, Maven of the RV10 uh, listserv. Is putting one in his airplane right now, though I doubt he's putting the portable version of it in. Um, and will be telling us soon how it uh, goes together nicely, hopefully, with his Chelton system. Uh, however, we are all intrigued because, of course, I don't have a Chelton system. I have the Grand Rapids technology system in my airplane. But I, I declined the offer of Garmin to spend upwards of $4,000. On their their TSO system that I I don't need TSO in my airplane. Let's start with that. Um, but also, the, it, it's come back and forth. There's people who say, okay, nav the nav works box is great, but you know it's only a receiver. It's not a transmitter. Okay, that's fine. But we haven't been told we have to do anything in the next ten years. Right. And, right, and, and a receiver is a great way to start because now you can pick up the weather. Quite frankly, where, where Jeb and I live, ADSB is probably more reliable than TIS, which you can't get um, in big pockets of Florida. But um, ADSB is here, is my understanding. Correct me if I'm wrong, Jeb. I, I don't have uh, hands-on experience one way or the other. Um, well, you know who my litmus test is, is Tom Benenson, who actually yeah. has the Garmin system yeah. in his airplane with the, with the uh, MX-200. Yeah. And he says he flies back and forth from Columbiaville, New York, to South Florida and west as far as the Appalachian Mountains, but not into Ohio, with ADSB. And it works beautifully for giving him weather and mm. giving him um, traffic. Mm-hmm. So, so we should all take a look at this. Now, I'll, I'm, I'm sort of tongue-in-cheek here, but uh, hope, okay. hopefully this is a first uh, example of one of these devices that's somewhat affordable and, uh, and we can well, get this well, ball rolling. Well, everybody keeps saying we just want a choice other than the gorilla. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now we have a choice other than the gorilla. Yeah. So I that's believe... Right. I believe that as, and, and this goes back to Paul Bertarelli's interview with, um, is it Jens uh, Higgins of Gamma? Gamma, yeah, I know who you're talking yeah. about. I can't, yeah. Okay. Um, in any case, it goes back to his interview at NBAA where Jens said, yeah, we're very close to coming up with some kind of an agreement on what, this, what the um, 
rules will be and what the requirements are for building one of these boxes. And one of the things holding manufacturers up from even bothering to compete with Garmin is that they don't know what the specs should be. Yeah. Yeah. Why yeah. why would I build a box? Why would I go to all the trouble to spend the money to build a box in this business environment that might turn out not to meet the specs that they haven't quite figured out? Yeah. The the coverage map I'm looking at on the FAA's website, uh basically the Florida Peninsula is covered uh below two thousand feet, probably between a thousand and two thousand feet. Um the same map shows similar coverage uh, working its way up the eastern seaboard um, all the way up into um, central Maine and um, west to um, eastern Alabama um, and the Ohio Valley and some of the Great Lakes area. Um, which Kansas City, North Platte, Nebraska... And Garden City, Kansas are covered. Wichita is not. And then you have um, uh, the West Coast. You have basically coverage from uh, Oregon uh, down to uh, Baja. Yeah, well, don't forget you have very good coverage in the Louisville, Kentucky area. Yes, because- Louisville. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yes. you got and that's, that's, yeah, the uh, Ohio yeah. River Valley yeah. is, was yeah. one of the early places that got ADSB right. coverage. Right, right. Yeah, so this device like Alaska, you're well covered in Alaska too. Yeah. So this is this is this device is Navworks. It's N A V W O R X dot com, and uh, take a look. Maybe this will uh, be the device you can put in your airplane, and uh, we'll start to see if this thing is really going to work. Um, here's another small item. I think it's a small item. Maybe this is going to turn into a big discussion, but I just kind of wanted to call it. I thought this was kind of interesting, and that is that. So we've been talking about um, about what people like to call uh, uh, unmanned aircraft, but I call remotely piloted aircraft. Um, and uh, there's been a lot of talk. There's been a lot of pushing and shoving, apparently, in the military, particularly the Air Force, um, about what sort of training was required to actually become a pilot of one of these things, and and whether and and the Air Force apparently was saying that you had to first be a full-blown pilot, and then you went off and became a, which of course is like, who the heck wants to? So it came became a big thing. Now Air Force has finally come to their, I don't know, come to their senses, but has has finally kind of thrown in the towel and said, we need we need remotely piloted aircraft pilots enough that we're going to create a program that only requires minimal traditional flight training, and. Uh, this is a story from Yahoo News. It says Air Force creates new pilot program for drones. They call it. This is the Yahoo headline. Uh, scrambling to meet. Jim, command- here's your chance to fly for the military. There yeah. you go. Yeah, that's what I always wanted to do. Scrambling to meet uh, commanders' insatiable demands for unmanned aircraft, the Air Force is launching two new training programs, including an experimental one that would churn out up to 1,100 desperately needed pilots to fly the drones over Iraq and Afghanistan. So, I don't know. Any thoughts on this? I I don't know. Well, first off, I think the number of pilots that they need is going to go down sharply after 2011, but that's another story. Uh, But here's hoping. Well, I'm sorry. What happens on 2011? We get out of well, Iraq. Oh, okay. That's that's kind of that's kind of where everybody's targeting yeah. in the Iraqis yeah, and, being negotiated. and different people for okay. U.S. military. Yeah. All right, but so but for the time, all those remotely piloted vehicles, if you're not there, and yeah, it's not like the the attrition rate is all that high. 
No, it's not like they're getting shot down. Okay. All right, that's just a little. uh... (laughs) No, whether they get shot down or they crash or you know whatever, they get they get airsick. I mean, uh, yeah, it's a guy in a black box in in Nevada somewhere. It's yeah, you you know the the bottom line is this: if you got if you got if you got some. some youngsters that are really good at Microsoft Flight Sim. Well, you my should son, be able to teach them to fly shooter. these things. You know, there that's you what I, I'm not sure if I buy that. Uh, they, they talk about that in this story a little bit, and they they talk about the fact that that uh, that it's not that simple or that straightforward, and that that in fact learning how to fly these things isn't the big deal. Um, the the bigger deal um, is learning how to operate the weapon systems and the sensor systems, and in some ways that's just as complicated here as it is in in an F-16 or an F-18 or whatever. Um, I'm sure that's true. You know, I'm sure that's true, plus the judge. Oh, yeah. Although I would suggest that the difference is that uh, when you're doing it in a, in a fighter plane, you are pretty much limited to two operators uh, on board the aircraft. Right. W- with these things, you could have a committee. You could have a whole. You could have a whole team of people operating different aspects of the aircraft, and and uh, that's not such a bad thing if you stop and think uh, about it. First of all, if you're about to to shoot a group of people because you think they're the bad guys, wouldn't it be nice to have a couple other other opinions yeah, standing yeah. over your so, shoulder? But then again, then. And then on the other hand, if that's the way they're going to do it, they need even more operators. So that you know, kind of goes back to what they're trying to do here. Um, well, I think that I, I don't think that it's necessarily a bad idea for the equipment that they're talking about. And I recognize that there's some special contingencies here because uh, you know we've got intelligence people here at McConnell Air Force Base in East Wichita that are actually operating intelligence gathering aircraft remotely on the far side of the world. And anybody that's ever watched a cable interview from here in the States done with somebody by satellite from the other side of the world has seen the little time lag that gets built in there. And that's going to affect the relay of flight and, you know, flight control instructions and weapon control instructions from people that are operating them here in the States and the actual vehicle in the, in, in the airspace, wherever it happens to be. Uh, I was wondering about that. Although it's not necessarily the case that these signals are being relayed by by uh, by satellite, they they could be going through various cables and fiber. Yeah, and, but even they still have to be transmitted to the to the airplane or the aircraft, I should say. Um, but it, that I don't see that as yeah. There's a, some latency involved here, but these guys aren't dogfighting other aircraft, so they're right. they don't have to have lightning fast reflexes and all that other nonsense that we we've heard about. Um, what they have to have is is information and data, and I can imagine the the data streams flowing from these aircraft with all the various sensors that they are, they're operating is is pretty substantial. Here's yeah. my bottom line. Yeah. Until those aircraft can autonomously see and avoid, yeah, keep them yeah. the freak out of my airspace. That's right. Mm-hmm. Hey, once again, I, I differ with you on this. I think that if they were properly equipped, um, well, the, these would. No one disagrees with that, Jack. The point is that they're not properly equipped. Well, okay, then then then, I'm, then we agree. But that's what I'm saying here is that they, when when they become properly equipped to see and avoid autonomously, then by all means put them in the pattern with me. But until that happens, no, uh, we don't become <laughs> an experiment. Yeah, no. 
All right. Finally, uh, and I don't know if this qualifies as being uh, an off-field landing of the week, but uh, um, what did you do? No, no. This is the uh, this is the uh, say again, Jeb. Did you do? I didn't do anything. This is the uh, this is the mid-air collision in Colorado. Ah, okay. No, 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 no. No, I'm fine. <laughs> um, so uh, let's see now. Uh, this is from a story in Oops. the the Ledger, theledger.com, which apparently is from Lakeland, Florida. I'm not sure why they're reporting on an aircraft incident that happened in Colorado, but no. Just pick up the AP story. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's a, it's an AP story. I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. So it's an AP story. Sheriff department. Uh, a sheriff's department. This they, they were carrying prisoners on a small aircraft, which I thought was also interesting. Isn't that like the isn't that isn't that like the storyline of a movie I saw recently? I don't know, but uh, <laughs> sheriff's department plane carrying inmates collided with another small craft over over the or craft in the it's, air it's, over it's western old, Colorado. It's an old Sky King episode. Yeah, that's what it is, right? Yeah, but both air so it was a mid air, genuine mid air, and both aircraft landed safely uh, with uh, with no injuries reported. Apparently, the uh, the larger of the two aircraft, a Cessna two ten, um, actually managed to land on a runway uh, at a nearby airport. And the other aircraft, which apparently was a Cessna 180, uh, did a force landing uh, in a field and and flipped over uh, on touchdown. But the two passengers or the two people on board got out okay. So, uh, looking at the picture of of the 180 yeah. and re- reading the text of the article, yeah, the 180 is kind of sort of missing most of its vertical stabilizer. It does appear to be, doesn't it? And that's one of the quotes from the article: is that. Yeah. They told me the collision tore off their tail. And so, anyways, that's... I hate when that happens. Yeah. I, I hate when my tail gets torn off. <laughs> you know, any time I lose any tail whatsoever, I'm an unhappy camper. Yeah. But, but they managed to land the airplane. There's a that's, testament to the people who put it together. They managed to land it safely in terms of right. everybody walking away. Yeah. Everybody walked away. That's why I slugged this a, a good landing. Yep. So uh, so we'll call that the uh, the duel off field landings of the week that covers no that just covers two weeks oh i see okay because we have fallen behind <laughs> we, we need to be doing some catching up here we need to catch up. hey listen we're going really long here we better wrap this thing up I, Anybody? I, I like this one line here very short sentence the cause of the crash is being investigated <laughs> well, the cause of the crash was too we hitting one another <laughs> damn it you christmas uh-huh. on a very nice day from what i can tell yeah like a nice you know, day well, see, that's the, whole... are, the authorities are investigating why the people died of starvation. They didn't get enough food. <laughs> I think the uh, I think the prisoners were all mutiny, um, mutinying on board the two ten, and so the pilot was distracted. And you know, it was that movie that was going on right then and there. And one Nicholas of the things, Cage, that's right. Yeah, right. Yeah, there we go. On air. There we go. That's Sh- a Nicolas Cage movie. Shout outs. Anybody got any shout outs? Oh, vote! I have one here, and I have one here, and I want to—I want to kind of put a call to action to all of my fellow aviators up here in, in northern New England. Um, we have yet another airport, and this is not a news story, but yet another airport which is being challenged by the local residents. A great little grassroots airport up in uh, southern Maine called Biddeford, Maine, uh, is uh, is under attack by the uh, the locals um, who 
believe for various reasons that it ought to be shut down. And uh, there is, I believe, a uh, referendum on the ballot coming up. And uh, many, many people in the aviation community up here are uh, are acting to try and get the word out about how important uh, these small uh, airports are. So, uh, you know, I mean, that makes me think this is not really shut out. I wanted to, and I'd forgotten that, but I wanted to, this reminds me of some, uh, something that I saw just the other day that was really moving to me. And I'm, I'm kind of, so I, I was, I went, I was out flying the other day and um, I, I had a cool flight and I'll tell you about the flight later on when we have more time. But um, after the flight was over, I was back on the ramp and I was kind of buttoning up the airplane and I heard a helicopter coming in the distance. And so I kind of climbed out from under the wing and I, I looked, you know, down final and I saw this helicopter approaching the airport. And this is kind of cool. So I'm standing there watching this and this happens as uh, helicopters use uh, Skyhaven for, uh, for practice. So they'll just kind of do practice approaches and they'll hover for a moment and they'll take off. So this one's, but this one's flying down the taxiway, and uh, it was a little bit different. And as he flew down the taxiway, he reached the point of the taxiway, which was a beam the ramp, and he did this cool kind of, very quickly hovered and then spun 180 degrees and then set right down onto the uh, taxiway, which is like you know 50 feet from me. It was very cool. And uh, this is a fairly big helicopter. This is like a twin turbine uh, helicopter, the kind that have retractable landing gear and the whole thing. And and as it got closer, I saw that it had markings on it for a hospital in Maine. And I, I just thought, okay, this is cool. And I'm watching him, and he kind of taxis into the ramp, and he kind of turns around 180 degrees. And as he, as he reaches the spot where he's going to stop, and he starts to shut down the engines, I suddenly notice an ambulance come from around behind the hangars, from in the, the direction of the uh, gate out onto the road. And an ambulance drove up to this helicopter and pulled up next to it. And I suddenly realized that this wasn't just some sort of practice, some sort of routine you know kind of arrival this was some patient being transfer transported from someplace in Maine presumably to the local hospital and as I'm standing there it just suddenly struck me and I, I was just you know I mean I literally was standing with my mouth open thinking to myself how can local people not realize how valuable local airports are and here's an example right here where you know, I mean, maybe I'm overstating it, but maybe not. Someone's life was saved because there was a small airport right here in Rochester that was able. I don't able, think that's an overstatement at all. You know, and and I, I mean, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not kidding. I and mean, as much as I was admiring this airplane, this helicopter, and just kind of standing there watching it, I was just suddenly standing there, going, "Oh my God! Here's a perfect example of how valuable small small airports are. That this little airport, there's a very quiet Sunday afternoon, and there's really nothing going on, and then all of a sudden the airport becomes comes away for someone's life to be saved or prolonged or whatever whatever was going on there. And certainly this kind of thing happens at Biddeford Maine Airport as well. And uh, and we just need to get the word out. That's, I guess, the point of my whole long story here is uh, I call on all of my fellow aviators and aviation fans in New England, and particularly northern New England, to, uh, to talk to your friends um, in Biddeford and get the word out about how important these little airports are. To the local newspaper. You know, and uh, let's make sure that we save Biddeford main airport because uh, not only is it a cool little grassroots airport but it may save your life someday so there you go. anyways that's my thing uh shout outs anybody else got another one um fuel prices are down go fly yeah there you uh, go. I, I can get 100 low lead not far from here for three dollars and 83 cents a gallon yep boo and wah yep Go Absolutely fly. true. I'll tell you some. I'll tell you some fun flying stories next time we get together because I, I did some flying recently and uh, and gasoline played into this actually. But that's another story altogether. Um, Amy, shout out. Uh, 
go fly again because as as Jeb said, it's it's we're coming into our flying season. We're coming That's into right. the time when it is the most fun to be in the air. That's right. So I'll wait. I might go down to Key West this weekend, uh-huh. Amy. If I do, I'll wave as I go by. Yeah, thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> David, anything? I just want to say hey and hi to uh, to all the folks that I got to meet at Stand Down. I passed a lot of uh, cards out there and uh, actually met a couple of listeners there. So uh, that's great. We, uh, we we are known wide and far. Yep, that's great. That's really great. Hey, as everyone knows, Amy Laboda is a freelance aviation writer, and she is also the editor-in-chief of Aviation for Women magazine, and you can learn more about her and her work at uh, the magazine's website, which is wai.org slash magazine. And Jeb Burnside is an aviation journalist, currently serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety magazine. Learn more about Jeb and his work at jebburnside.com or aviationsafetymagazine.com. Dave Higdon is an aviation photographer. He's also a senior editor for Kit Planes magazine and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales magazine. You can learn more about Dave and his work at kitplanes.com or avbuyer.com slash worldaircraftsales. And I am Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer and learn more about me and my work at jackhodgson.com or aroundthefield.net we want to thank uh, uh, Scoffrey Jet uh, Jeff Scoffrey Jet I don't want to say his last name yet because I'm not sure if I have his permission but uh, Scoffrey Jet is one of our listeners and one of the contributors in the forums and he's doing an awesome job putting together the show notes we also want to thank uh, to the many of our listeners and particularly to Mike Morgan who have put together the show open and disclaimer clips and uh, in, in general don't forget uh, that you can visit with us all at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can read the blog, you can view the forums, you can check out the uh, wiki and all the information that's going in there, and that's all at uncontrolledairspace.com. Does one of you guys have something you want to say? Yeah, actually I do. Did you know that the uh, magazine is online now, and you can find it at afwdigital.org, so that's alphafoxwhiskeydigital.org. Oh, very cool. If you want to take a look at Aviation for Women Online. Very, very cool. And uh, that's not what I was alluding to. That's actually, that's good as well. That's No, it's fine. I'm glad you jumped in there. But uh, I know know Dave and Jeb were arm wrestling over this, and I'm not sure who decided who won. But uh, one of you has got something to say, right? Go flying, because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. That's right. That's enough talking. You said it better. And that's enough talking for this week. Let's all go flying. Yeah.